Good morning, everyone, brothers and sisters. I'm so glad to see you again. And to our many visitors, we are immensely happy and grateful that you are here. Thank you for joining us today. Um, <clears throat> there are many kinds of affliction in the world. Mankind experiences sickness, sadness, displacement, and neediness and poverty of all kinds and degrees. And having just returned home from a mission trip to Uganda, which is a third world country, I, I know that as well as anyone I have seen some of the lowest types of affliction that humans can experience. But that is also not to diminish the types of suffering that we all experience here either. While we are largely free from material poverty, in particular in this room, even the wealthiest among us is not immune to cancer, to family strife, to struggles with infertility, to guilt and regret. Affliction is part of the human condition. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Each year on this Sunday, churches around the world gather and teach from scripture about what God believes about the value of life. In particular, we teach about abortion, which is one of the greatest enemies of the sanctity of life of our time. Abortion is, of course, a complex and multifaceted issue. It has many causes and effects, both obvious and subtle, but it is an affliction to us all. And although I believe the, the members here are of one mind on the matter, I would first like to clarify what the biblical godly position on abortion is. <coughs> Please excuse me, I'm recovering from a bit of a head cold. If my voice wears out and you need me to turn the volume up, please say so, we can do that. So a summary of the Christian position on abortion. First, mankind is made in the image of God. We know from the creation account in Genesis that mankind is made as an image bearer of God and as the capstone of God's creative work in making the universe and all things. We are valued uniquely and more highly than the earth and the plants and the animals that fill it. And part of our inherent purpose as image bearers of God and as human beings is to procreate and fill the earth with life and more image bearers of God. Secondly, we also know that God considers the unjust taking of a human life to be a grievous offense. In the Noahic covenant after Noah uh, returns from the flood and the ark, God tells him that the taking of a human life unjustly is a serious crime against God. In the Ten Commandments, we are told not to murder. In the Levitical law to the Israelites, the punishments for taking a life are severe and in kind. And by way of reminder, these statements are inherently and always true. You will recall that in our Bill of Rights, it does not define a right to life, but rather acknowledges that it is self-evident. Our right to life is granted by God, and the taking of that life is an offense against him. Thirdly, we believe that the lives of children have a special value, that God places a unique concern on the lives of his children. Without going into hardly any detail at all, I would like to illustrate this point uh, with a, a good defense that you can use against the common complaint that God uh, unjustly ordered the Israelites to kill many of the people groups in the promised land, in Canaan. A lot of people are uncomfortable with the fact that in the Old Testament we have record of God commanding entire people groups to be killed by the Israelites. But in fact, historically and biblically, we know that um, endemic among almost all of these people groups, child sacrifice was a perfectly ordinary and normal part of everyday life. They would offer their own children to demonic gods in exchange for food, shelter, power, military success, and prosperity. And so in return, God decrees their lot to be annihilation. Additionally, in the New Testament, Jesus reminds us that one who would lead a child astray in the teachings of God would be better off dying a horrible death by drowning. God places a unique concern in the lives of children. 
And finally, we know that God considers a child to be fully alive and fully a person prior to birth. Psalm 139 tells us that God knows us while we are still in our mother's womb. In the Gospel of Luke, we have an account of two unborn children, Jesus Christ himself and John the Baptist, both in the wombs of their mothers, recognizing one another and communicating, fully persons with their complete identity already established prior to birth. Therefore, taking all this in mind, the only Christian position on abortion is that it is a serious sin and cannot be justified. So let me turn to the text that I will be preaching from today now. Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, verses three and four. I'm reading out of the ESV. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And so we can see from this passage, there are three major points that I'll make today. First is that we are afflicted. Second is that we are comforted. And thirdly, that we should then comfort others. And in particular, I will be relating all three of those uh, examples or commands to the issue of abortion. So in what ways is abortion an affliction? First and most obviously, the child that is aborted is afflicted. He or she is denied life itself. He is prematurely taken away from all of the joys and mercies and graces that God gives us as we live. We as Christians believe that all life is valuable. And that includes life that is undesired by others. That includes life with disabilities or life that is inconvenient. Our culture has become regrettably confused about the nature and the sanctity of life in general as we have tried to determine, sometimes for ourselves, but more frighteningly for others, whether or not a life is worth living. But this is completely backwards. Life is not worth living because we perceive its value or because we would be willing to do it over again or because we have measured it to contribute to society, but rather life is worth living because it is a gift from God. And if we do not appreciate that on its own terms, then the fault lies with our sin sinful hearts and not with the gift of life. Secondly, the mother is afflicted. I can grant that there are some extremely rare cases in which an abortion is truly involuntary and the mother's suffering is obvious in those cases. But in the overwhelming majority of cases, a pregnant woman chooses in one form or another to abort her child. That decision alone and the making of it is undoubtedly an affliction as many people will testify to. God has instilled within us a sense of guilt when we sin and even a person who has hardened against their conscience must still experience some affliction. But even more than that, the mother in this case is denied the blessing of bearing a child. In our culture, the blessing is misunderstood or rejected but God's word and his natural design for creation is clear that the bearing and raising of children is one of the highest blessings and honors that a mother can ever receive. This particular conversation has been, more, been made more complex as of late by the rise of an idea of a life designed to be childless. I need to speak very carefully and compassionately as I say this, as I do realize that there are countless men and women among us who deeply desire to marry and bear children and who for myriad reasons cannot uh, and in fact, it's a great concern to me um, that the number of single women in churches in particular will undoubtedly increase as the years go by, as on the whole, 
there are only about 85 young unmarried men in American churches for every 100 women. And it's 50 to 100 in African American churches. Pray for your daughters. But again, in the majority of cases of childlessness today, it is a willful and designed decision by the mother or the parents. Uh, And in fact, these women are often celebrated for making this choice to bear no children. Except in the rare case wherein God calls someone to a life of ministry in singleness, a woman who seeks to fulfill her purpose by means other than God's means rejects his, his very design and her very intent. And so even beyond the act or the choice of an abortion, a woman is afflicted by the refusal of God's calling and God's blessing upon her. Third, the father is afflicted, whether present or not. In our common parlance of a woman's right to choose independently of all other influence, the fathers of unborn children have been able to fade into the background, largely to their own pleasure. Um, And although the father of an unborn child does not generally have any kind of last word or definitive say in the choice to abort a child, uh, God sees things a little differently. He is not able to escape responsibility so easily. Just as God has designed for women to be blessed by bearing children, God has designed for men to be blessed by leading their families and being responsible for them. I don't know of anyone who would suggest that right and godly leadership includes leaving someone innocent in your charge to be killed. Again, even if a man does not desire a family or to leave within that family, by acting in such a way that allows a child that he has conceived to be aborted, he is abdicating and denying God's design and purpose for him. And he is abdicating his role to the woman and to the child to be responsible for what he has helped to create. Men are created and designed to be responsible, not in the generic, objectless sense that comes with general maturity, but to be specifically in a position of leadership and responsibility over others in which they are placed by God. And so, by rejecting that place and that purpose, the father is also afflicted. And I would like to be very clear on this as well. There is no abortion in which the father is not in some way culpable. Many men pressure women to have abortions, and that is obviously sinful. Many men leave the decision up to her, which is a direct rebellion against God's design. Many men irresponsibly have sex with no strings attached and don't even know if the woman is pregnant. Nonetheless, they are still responsible for their actions, and God will hold them to account for such things. Even a man who desires to keep the child and advocates for it, but fails to do so, is still responsible. God has placed you in leadership over your household, men. And if you have sex outside of it, or if you fail to lead it adequately, you are held to account for that. Just like the women who are afflicted by fleeing their calling of childbearing and raising, so are men afflicted when they abdicate theirs. Fourth, the entire family, generations, are afflicted by abortion. Again, God has decreed and designed that children are a blessing, a good thing. Siblings should be a joy. Grandchildren are the pride of old age. God and therefore Christians are unabashedly, unreservedly pro-children. We believe that life is a blessing, the more the merrier, and that children are a gift. And so the loss of such a gift is an affliction. Fifth, our civic society is afflicted by abortion. We as a society have lost millions upon millions of our future generations already and more to come. Our children, our nephews, their neighbor friends and their schoolmates, our future inventors and doctors and leaders and missionaries will never be. 
even practically, who will work the jobs that will exist in the future? Who will care for the ever-increasing population of the aged? Who will have the next generation of children? And God forbid, if you are African-American, half of all black pregnancies in America are being aborted. Being a black unborn baby is one of the most dangerous types of life to live. Where will culture be in 50 years when an entire generation is cut in half? And even more than that, we are losing an entire generation of our beloved, sweet, disabled children. A couple of years ago, the nation of Iceland declared somewhat boastfully that they had eliminated Down syndrome in Iceland. And in fact, they have eliminated all of the people with Down syndrome in Iceland, primarily through abortion. The entire country has lost a blessing of God's dear children, made in his image, who are a little bit different than us. So when a child is aborted, we are all afflicted. Lastly, the one who performs the abortion is afflicted. Abortion is murder of which the doctor is guilty. There is a form of affliction in scripture that is passed out to those who have committed sins deserving of it. The abortionist, although he may not know it today, will pay for the lives that he has taken. And in due time, God will pass judgment. And so then this brings us to the summary of all affliction, not just the afflictions that come to us by abortion, but all affliction, all affliction is born of sin. When God created all things, he made them pure and free from every affliction, there was no suffering. Adam and Eve were to live and love one another and fill the earth with children and with God's glory, but by sin and the rebellion against God's design, affliction has entered the world. Eve sought fulfillment apart from God and Adam, complicit beside her, abdicated his responsibility and joined with her. And from that moment, sin and suffering and affliction are our lot in life. Thorns and thistles, sickness and death, murder, robbery, hatred, strife, envy, sadness, loneliness, and abortion are now part of this world. The punishment for sin, as God is the creator and sin is rebellion against him, is death due fairly and justly to all of us. We are all fully deserving of all affliction that we have received because of our sin. Paul's letter to the Romans teaches us that all have sinned and that the wages earned and paid of sin are death. The afflictions in our lives, whether directly brought upon ourselves or not, are punishment for sin and will only get worse. God promises in his word in the book of Revelation that there is a place of second death, even after the ultimate earthly affliction of physical death we are warned that a lake of fire awaits all who sin. And yet let me return to our passage that I read today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. What does it mean that we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings and then share in his comfort as well? First, we know that Christ is the son of God and God himself. Jesus is completely free from sin and so why then does he suffer? In what way do we share in his suffering? And then how do we also share in his comfort? 
Jesus was born to a woman here on earth, fully human. He gestated and was born and he grew into a toddler and a child and a young man and into a man. He lived a full and complete human life as all of us do. And yet he lived this life without sin. Although despite being without sin himself, he suffered all the afflictions common to humanity despite being undeserving of them. Beyond that, he was unjustly put to death for crimes he did not commit, which is more than any of us here can say. And even beyond that, he experienced the affliction and the suffering and the punishment that was due to us from God for our sin as he died. And all this for what? See in 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered on the cross to pay for our sins. And Isaiah 53 uses even the exact words that we have been using today. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And so then our second question of the text, what comfort have we received? Jesus' death and suffering, his affliction, has paid for our sins. And so because that debt has been paid for all who believe, we now join Christ in the comfort that he has received. Jesus was killed as we will all die one day. That is the ultimate earthly affliction. And yet Jesus does not continue to the lake of fire, which is the lot of all unrepentant mankind. But rather, Jesus was raised from death to life and is today seated at the right hand of God in a place of highest honor in heaven. And all who believe will be called to join him. Jesus will call you his brother, his sister, his co-heir to the household of the Father, the Creator God. And that is the greatest comfort that we could ever receive. If you today desire this comfort and this salvation, repent of your sins. No sin is so great that Jesus could not suffer for it. Confess your sins to God. Any sins, the sin of abortion is not too great. Believe that Jesus is your savior and that he rose from the dead and you too will be comforted with salvation. Let me now introduce a few additional words. Having discussed affliction at length, uh, we also notice that our passage speaks much more than affliction of comfort. What do we call it when God sees those in affliction and desires to give them comfort? We say that he is compassionate. God is compassionate towards us. And what do we call it when God shows compassion to those undeserving? We call it grace. God, when he shows us comfort, despite our sin and our undeserving nature, gives us compassion and grace. And in those ways, he comforts us. Specifically, I would like to draw your attention to three types of grace which we are given by God. First is the one that I shared, saving grace, the ultimate form of comfort. We are subject to the ultimate form of affliction, that is eternal death, and God shows us the ultimate compassion reaching out to us despite our hatred against him, and then God delivers the ultimate grace, sacrificing his own son to pay for that redemption. There is no greater comfort than to know that God saves us. If you have had an abortion, if you have encouraged someone to have an abortion, if you have performed an abortion, if you have stood idly by and done nothing while millions of children have been aborted, God can save you from that. He can comfort you. But there is more comfort 
God not only comforts us with salvation, but he comforts us with sanctification. Sanctification is the long and halting and forward and backward process by which we, once our hearts are made new at the time of our salvation, become more like God in our heart and mind and body. God promises to work in us, helping us to kill sin and to realign our beliefs and priorities to be more like his. And this is a source of great comfort as well. First, it is good news that we have the power of God within us to sin less and less. We have seen how sin afflicts us and those around us. So will we not seek to eliminate it wherever it exists? And yet indeed we are weak, we still sin, we still desire to sin, we are still hurt by and hurt others with sin. And yet God does comfort us even in that weakness. He assures us that little by little he is working within us to sanctify us. So be patient and be faithful and be comforted by sanctification. But especially as we speak of the afflictions that come from abortion, it comes to my mind that many people do not believe what Christians believe about marriage and families and gender and children and all manner of other things. And you yourself may be challenged in your mind right now, unsure of what you believe or perhaps in disagreement with what God teaches. You can still take comfort even in this. God's sanctification is not only of our actions, but also of our hearts and of our minds. God, in the fullness of time, will remake your beliefs, your desires, your affections to be like his. So if today you do not wish to follow God's plan for a family, pray that he will sanctify you. If you feel unsure that you believe that life begins at conception, or if the public's pressure to support a woman's right to choose makes you second guess the word of God, ask him to comfort you with the sanctification of the renewal of your mind. He will. And finally, God comforts us with common grace. Common grace is that which is shown to all mankind, regardless of whether or not they are saved. Common grace is economic prosperity. It is a beautiful sunset. It is the first laugh of a new baby or the good feeling you get from helping a friend in need. All of these things which mankind loves and takes joy from regardless of their faith in Jesus are common grace. And we can take comfort from such things. They remind us that God loves us and cares for us. They remind us of his much greater comfort to save. They remind us that he is comforting us by making us sanctified and more like him. And they point those who do not believe in God towards him. God's common grace accomplishes his will. Let me share with you some encouragement in the form of common grace about abortions. In 2018 alone, 58 additional restrictions against abortion were passed at a state level, and a large number of pro-life laws have been upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States. The New York Times reported in late 2019 that, quote, the divided left is losing the debate on abortion, end quote. The overall abortion rate is lower than it has been since we started measuring around the time of Roe v. Wade. There are all kinds of reasons for those figures. Some of them are good and some of them are bad, but that is common grace. God is comforting us through these common, worldly, sin-jumbled means. He gives us grace. And God gives grace to the men and women who choose abortions by preventing them from bringing more affliction upon themselves and others through these common means. So take these blessings, these victories, and these common graces and be comforted by them. 
God is working in our nation. Our leaders, most of whom know nothing of the God that we believe in, are in their own way agents of God's common grace. Our activists, although they do not make headlines, are being rewarded even here on earth with success. And our pregnancy centers, even here in Culpeper, though vandalized and reviled, are winning the battle on the front lines. And in that, you can take comfort. And so now we come to the final point of this passage. God comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort others. In the same way that God has had compassion on us and comforts us with saving grace and sanctifying grace and common grace, we can show and send those onward. First, we comfort others by sharing the gospel. We cannot save, but we can share. God has comforted you with salvation. So offer it to others. Preach the gospel to your family and friends. Proclaim the offer of grace. If salvation is the greatest comfort that we could receive, how could you not share? All those who are in affliction, everyone around us who suffers, we have the answer. We have the comfort that they need. I cannot solve poverty in Uganda. I cannot cure cancer. I cannot stop abortions. But I have the gospel which is better. If you know someone considering an abortion, share the gospel with them. God alone can save. If you know someone who has had an abortion, and we all do know someone, tell them God can forgive them. If you have had an abortion and experienced forgiveness, share your testimony. Your church members and neighbors and community need to hear the story of God's grace. Next, we comfort others by being sanctified and helping them be sanctified. In our churches, there are those who are further along in sanctification. And in fact, unless you are a brand new Christian just today, you are further along in that journey than someone else. It is our duty as Christians to encourage and teach and exhort one another to obedience. This very sermon is part of that act. We teach the sanctity of life on this Sunday for the cause of the sanctification of the body. So teach your brothers and sisters what is right to believe. Demonstrate by word and by example how is right to live. Share your experiences, especially in the realm of abortion, with your brothers and sisters. There is an immense stigma and shame around this topic, but within the body we are not a people held captive by shame. We are set free from sin and the guilt of sin and we must remind each other of that. And lastly, exhort one another to be godly and wise in our sexual ethic. Flee sexual immorality. Commit to accountability. Resolve to be responsible to and for your wife and children today and in the future. Rebuke the one who is sexually cavalier. Keep the body pure. This is a countercultural act of comfort. Whether it seems so at the time or not, we know that comfort is truly only found in the arms of God. And so chasing someone who has fled them is in fact merciful. The final way that we show comfort to others is by means of common grace. There are countless ways by which God works his comfort in the world, economically, politically, academically, scientifically, and none of us can realistically involve ourselves in all or many or even any of them. And not only that, but to expect for our actions to have a noticeable, satisfying impact is a recipe for discouragement. 
we must rely on God to enact his purposes. Our role is to be faithful. And here are some ways that we can do that. Be faithful in the common grace means of God outside of the doors of this church. First, I would encourage you to educate yourselves about abortions and their effects. I've already shared some about the effects of abortion on the African-American community and the disabled, but let me also tell you some more sobering facts that you will not hear much of outside of our small circles. And some of this probably directly goes against information that you have already heard. First, you should know that our open abortion laws are not mainstream. There are four countries in the world that allow an abortion for any reason after viability. Those countries are the United States, Canada, China, and North Korea. Second, you should know that according to a 2009 poll, only 7% of Americans believe in abortion at any time for any reason, and yet that was exactly what was mandated by the Roe v. Wade decision. This country is not so divided as some would have you believe. Third, you should know that abortion is not a matter of women's rights being attacked by men or by the government or by political processes or by churches. And in fact, a greater percentage of women than men believe that abortion is morally wrong in most cases, 58 to 49%. Fourth, you should know that our incremental successes, despite leaving much to be desired, have borne great fruit. As I said before, abortions are at an all-time low since Roe v. Wade when we started seriously keeping track. Hundreds of laws restricting and reducing abortions have been passed in those 45 years. Lives are being saved. It is not wrong to seek and celebrate incremental, small victories, despite our conviction for absolutist elimination of abortions. And I could go on, but my point is that it is incumbent upon us as Christians living in the world to be informed and prepared to defend our positions. Our political and intellectual actions are a means of God's common grace in the world. And since God has been so gracious as to comfort us with common grace, we are obligated to pass it along. Another common comfort we can offer as Christians is strong advocacy for groups that oppose abortion and groups that support families. This includes churches, first and foremost. Our churches should be places that love families and children and care for them and support them. We should be beacons of light in our communities where no one, even the most hardened, anti-religion, anti-Christian, pro-abortion advocates could not possibly deny that we are a great benefit to families and children and our communities. Any organization that helps children and families in a Christian way is part of this issue, and that includes pregnancy centers like Thrive here in Culpeper. It includes foster care. It includes adoption agencies. A very common argument leveled against Christians who are against abortion is that we care so much for children in the womb but do not care for needy children already born. Let us destroy that straw man argument. The Christians in ancient Rome were famous for picking babies out of trash piles that were left to die from exposure. We ought to be renowned for our care of God's children. Another common grace in which we can participate is in voting. I would never dare to suggest who you should vote for from the pulpit, but I am also not afraid to say for whom you should not. The Bible's clearest New Testament teaching on the government is found in Romans chapter 13, wherein Paul teaches that civic authorities are given by God to punish the evildoer and to give terror to bad conduct. In our representative democracy, which is strange and unique amongst all of history, we are in the position to have a say in who those authorities are. 
we should not be willing to give our elective approval to someone who will authorize and support the direct state-sponsored terrorizing of the innocent. And lastly, we can pass down our common grace by taking the utmost care with the way we conduct ourselves in this debate. Abortion is a heavy and painful topic. Even those who would deny that it is so and say that it's nothing, it's a medical procedure, it's ordinary, who cares? They're wrong. In their hearts and in their nature, they are wrong. And since God has made us all in his image and no matter how hardened Since God has made us in his image, no matter how hardened the heart, no one can go against him forever. So have compassion on your opponents, being gracious and turning the other cheek. Have so much more compassion on those who have had abortions. God has saved you from your sins. So you should not dare to try to usurp his place of judgment. Our God can save anyone from anything. Our language, our arguments, and our discussions should be full of grief and compassion, not condemnation. Our bumper stickers and social media posts and catchphrases and sermons should offer hope to the sinner, not crush them. Brothers and sisters, we have Jesus in this church, in our hearts, if you believe in him. Jesus has suffered for you. He was afflicted for our sins, including the sin of abortion, but also the sin of pride, the sin of lust, the sin of hypocrisy, the sin of unforgiveness, the sin of abdication. God has comforted us with his graces, forgiving us and freeing us from our enslavement to sin and to the guilt that comes from it. So let us then show that compassion to others. Let us comfort them. Let us comfort them with the hope of the gospel that saves. Let us comfort each other with the hope of sanctification. And let us comfort the world with the common grace of God. Let us fight against abortion with compassion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God of life. You've created life as a gift to us. And oh, Father, how we have spoiled it. Father, we repent as a people, as churches, as countries. We have turned so far from you, considering your most precious and beautiful gift to be worthless, to be inconvenient, to be unnecessary. Father, we're wrong and we are sinners. Father, your compassion knows no bounds to think that you could come in the flesh to suffer our afflictions, our greatest and final afflictions, so that you might offer us the comfort that we have rejected again and again. God, thank you for that comfort. Thank you for changing our hearts. Thank you for the comfort that comes in day by day, being a little more like you. And God, let us take that comfort and turn it outward. Let us be your agents of change in the world, spreading your common grace along with the gospel as far as we can reach. 
let us do so as you have done, with comfort, with compassion, with mercy, with grace. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.